Good morning, everyone. Uh, my, my wife can't be here today. She's at home taking care of our kids. They're sick, leaving snail trails everywhere they go. So we left them at home for your sake. But she recently got into nursing school, if you haven't heard. And we're, I'm, it, yeah, honestly, it's a big deal because uh, the program she went into, you can pay to get into some, and there's some you have to fight to get into. Uh, Teresa, you got into it too. I mean, the, the ta- the, what is it, 50 out of 500? Or is it f- Yeah, so it's like 10 to 1. It's incredibly hard to get in, so we're very excited. But what it means is that the next 18 months are real hard. <laughs> uh, it really is. And so I'm doing uh, a lot of cooking now, and I did not do a lot of cooking before. Um, I'm not a bad cook, but Elena, she, she expresses herself with cooking. She'll come home all stressed, the, the kind of day that I would least want to cook, and she's like, I just need to get in the kitchen and make something, and she's great. Like, Why would I interrupt this wonderful process? So for 10 years of marriage, I don't cook, but now I do. And for the longest time, we've got apartment life. We've got this little apartment, thus nursing school. Um, and so everything's crammed in the kitchen for, for years. She's saying to me, I can't do this. I can't stand this little kitchen. Everything's so crammed. I need to spend some money for some storage stuff. And I kept saying, I don't feel like now's the right time. I don't think we should, like, not now. I cooked one meal in there, and I was on my phone on Amazon, like, okay, this is stupid. I need, I, and I bought spice racks that magnet to the side of the fridge. I bought ones that mount in the pantry, shelf dividers, reorganized everything. Uh, and she's grateful, but I can't tell how much she's also wrathful by the way it had to come about. Um, but really, it's nice now. Now when I preheat the oven, step one isn't pull the pots and pans out of the oven, preheat the oven. I can just preheat it because they're not in there anymore. Um, but there are times that, that rooms jump like that, don't they? Like, I go into the, the kitchen now, this side of nursing school, and I think, wow, it's so different in here. It's very nice. Uh, and I can think back to when it wasn't that way, when everything was crammed in and, to, you know, the spice, each spice little thing was five of them back, so you're just digging, like, everything looks like cinnamon, and it's not. Um, and now it's all clean. It's very nice. And I feel like rooms do that, don't they? Evolutionary jumps. Something changes. I mean, we did that in here. We, little things changed. We're all seeing an old picture, and it looks different in this room. You know, we used to have red chairs in here. They're purple now, very fancy. Uh, Jim Park, but the wood on the back wall looks very nice. Little changes. And we, we, we can flip through all the fo- photos of our home, the living room, and we think, oh, I forgot how it used to look in there before we got the new couch or the shelf that made it to where things could get put away properly. There's just these moments when, yes, we, we buy and we put things in rooms and they change a little bit, but there's those moments like tectonic shift when the room changes a lot and things are really reformatted. And that's the way an evolution of a room goes. And I have found, I was thinking about the book series that we're going through right now, and I was thinking about there are times in my life that I've read certain books of the Bible that felt like they had that kind of effect on my life. Like things dramatically changed. Whole new furniture, the, the, the room of my life is reset. Things can go places. Things are different. The first time I was uh, probably about 11 or 12, I wanted to ask my mom, where's the story of Moses? She pointed me to the book of Exodus, and I remember exactly where I sat. I mean, it made such an impact on me to read it. I I sat in, you know, you got the sectional couch. I sat in the corner, the cozy corner, and I read the whole book. And then I kept going and read the ones after it. It was the beginning 
of my personal Bible study. My mom didn't realize at the time, but she put me on a path that would become a great addiction of mine <laughs> uh, and leads to today. I remember during the pandemic, I, they, we went to remote work. So I took that extra 30 minutes. I would drive to work and extended my morning devotions. And I thought, I'm going to just, I'm going to really go after the book of Ezekiel. I'm not just going to read it. I'm going to spend an hour every morning studying one chapter at a time. And it took a long time. That's a big book. Uh, but I got through it. And I remember just seeing the just connections with where we were in 2020 to now. Uh, this the connections of the chaos and things feel like they're breaking apart and the the culture and society that Jews had once felt secure in was breaking apart, yet God went with them. Into the chaos, he, he goes with them, and the, the vision of the, the wheels and God's presence with them and how God can reign over chaos. And it made me realize that God's eternal promises are more important than uh, national security and the things that we have we put our weight down and that the kingdom of heaven is something to, to weigh in on and to care about and to feel peace from. But one of them that really impacted me was this book. In high school, I read Proverbs for the first time, all the way through. I had no idea what it was. I didn't know what a proverb was. I was like, wow, they're just little short sayings. This is great. But I read it, and I remember feeling it, it changing my life every day I read it because I had realized as I was reading this book how unguided I was because of how guided it made me feel. I realized how um, impulsive I was with how premeditated and reflective it turns you into being. I remember it making me see uh, friends of mine different. And not that I became more judgmental, but you kind of knew which ones to let weigh in on your life and which ones not to. This book dramatically changed me as a person because of, how they, because of what they are meant to be. You see, uh, wisdom in the Hebrew mind, or because we could even say biblical wisdom, isn't like European wisdom. European wisdom is this lofty thought, how do I know I exist kind of stuff. Like, what, what good is that? Honestly, have you read existentialism? What a waste of time. <laughs> you sit around, do I really exist? That, that's not going to help you do anything. Biblical wisdom, Hebrew wisdom is different. It, it, is, it is a person who knows what to do. Wisdom is knowing what to do, to be prudent. You know, that to, wisdom would be the kind of thing to where you might, a small picture of it is when a kid learns, it's that time of year again, I better bring my bike in from out of the rain because even though it's not raining now, it will rain tonight, so I'll park it underneath. That's a child who just grew up in some wisdom. Wisdom to bring stuff in, knowing what to do. It's practical, it's functional. And what's amazing about uh, biblical wisdom and Proverbs is that it's written by these profoundly wise people for the consumption of all. There's this unique thing about God's truth, isn't it? That, the, that the, the wisest of the wise can pull deep things out of its well, but it's also for little kids. It's for children. It's for, it's for everybody. And this book is very profound in that regard. And so we're going to flip me more slowly than you. You know what? I don't feel like flipping. No, I do. I got there fast. I was going to say I'll read it off the prompter with you, but I won't. All right, Proverbs 22. We're going to read 22 and 23 today. Do not exploit the poor because they are poor, and do not crush the needy in court, for the Lord will take up their case and extract life for life. 
it's a, it's a good summary statement on how God feels about the poor. A very present theme in Scripture is God's tender heart towards the poor. Now, the, the poor in Scripture, they're not defined simply as those with few assets. They would be defined very specifically as those who lack the ability to achieve justice for themselves. And now that's very true of true financially poor people, but it also could be true of people who have someone far more powerful over them. And as God sees these poor, he cares for them. You see, a rich person is very hard to take advantage of. They've got deep pockets and they fight hard. If you want to rip someone off, you've got to rip someone off that can't stand up to you, uh, someone that, that, that can't go higher. And so the weak are constantly preyed upon. There's a very large gang, and they're mostly in the southern area of the U.S. called MS-13. I'm not sure if you've heard about MS-13. They're very large. They, can, they, they have these large acts of crime, but they target a very, very, very specific group of people, and they stay away from everybody else. They target illegal immigrants. That is their target because illegal immigrants don't even feel the power that they can go tell law enforcement what's going on because they're afraid of being deported. And so MS-13 goes after those people because no one is there to advocate for them. As, the, as we see this theme that we even see today in our own society, the poor have no chieftain, no one to guard them. So God takes up the cause. It's worth noting that some of the most severe outpourings of judgment in Scripture was God defending the poor and the powerless. Sodom and Gomorrah are, is one of the most pronounced pictures. When we think of hell fury from the sky, we think of literal hell fury from the sky. That's what happened to this city. And unbelievable destruction falls to them because they were, as a whole city came together to brutalize visitors that came into that city with no significant kin to protect them that they would do this thing to these people that are powerless, and God shows that they are not powerless. Because it wasn't just people in the house that all those people came to terrorize. There were angels in there too, and destruction falls on that city. There's a parable of a, a rich Pharisee who dies. And when he dies, Jesus depicts him as burning in Hades, and he's burning for the sake of not caring for Lazarus at the gate, a poor man who was there every day. And you see, Jesus, he took, he took issue with Pharisees on several issues, but none of them brought about his fury like the way they treated the poor. And one of the most prolific pictures of Christ's wrath when he dumps over the tables and when he chases out the money collectors with a whip, which would have taken a long time to braid, by the way. Like all of you ladies that ever had your mom brush your hair when she was mad, it would have looked like that just for like an hour. These were serious whips, so he was dedicated to this rage. He chases them out because of the way they are taking advantage of people that can't afford to bring their own cattle and feed them along the way, that they would take advantage of the, of the poor and the powerless. The point of the proverb is very simple. God is the patron deity of the poor. He also happens to be the God of the universe. So we all best watch our P's and Q's around the poor. And God does not blame them for being poor. Now, that's something that I think is important in our own society. We, we have so much uh, focus on upward mobility and things that at times in our society, we can blame the poor for being poor. 
But his guidance to people isn't that there's a certain amount of wealth that he asks us all to attain. He just asks us to be good stewards of what we have. Could be a little or it could be a lot. Christ said, the poor will always be among you because every economy since the world began to today has the same requirement. The poor and the powerless must remain that way for things to keep rolling forward. You can't have everybody rich in our society or in any other. If Foxconn really started paying its Chinese workers the wage that they should be getting for assembling iPhones, Apple would go out of business tomorrow because none of us are going to spend five grand for an iPhone. There are simply too many duties that no one would choose to do if they had options. And so every society has these things built in to make sure that certain people don't have those options. And this is the way that it remains for a long time. The poor will always be among you. A call to be compassionate, a call to keep a steady pace. If you're going to care for and advocate for the poor, it's not a sprint, it's going to be a marathon. Until the one day when the Messiah of the poor comes, and he'll do something no one else has ever done. He will remove the realities of poverty and oppression from the face of the earth. Yet in the meantime, it's critical that we recognize the realities of the poor and understand who advocates for them. Now, I know what you're thinking. That, that, that's it, right? That's the whole sermon. If Sam could preach in 10 minutes every Sunday, why doesn't he do it all the time? It's not the end. My friends, it's the beginning. Um, what I wanted to talk about, and I think it's, it's prudent for us in our specific corner of, of the Christian movement, thus, thus that, are, uh, that would be of the evangelical mindset, I want to talk about social justice. Because if a child of God should bring justice to the poor, how does that look? And I find that Christianity is very divided on social justice and sacred justice. There are two kind of different ways of seeing how the gospel would play out. Does it play out bringing sacred justice or does it play out bringing social justice? Social justice would involve the gospel bringing justice to people here on earth, while sacred justice is about getting right with God, inheriting eternal life. There are Christians who would say that the church completely fails to spread the gospel when it will not take a stand for social justice. And in that moment, the church is not the church. Others would say that handing out food boxes without preaching repentance from sin and obedience to Christ is a failure of the church to be the church. Our movement, the evangelical world of Christianity, is more in the latter camp. We're dedicated very heavily to eternal life, spreading the gospel, people coming to know Christ. And I see what I feel is there's a lot of people in the movement that are afraid to talk about social justice implications of Scripture. And I believe it's because we've legitimately seen a lot of movements that started out with, with wanting to do good completely losing their focus. They forget heaven entirely, and they lose themselves. I don't think we should be afraid to talk about it. The ways that the presence of, of there's over a dozen churches in the city, how those churches should impact people's daily lives, their hunger, the ways they feel trapped, what's ahead of them, their next steps. We shouldn't be worried because the Messiah saves the individual, and he brings justice to the oppressed. And I have the perfect story today to read about that. 
in the days that Rome occupied Israel, the days of the New Testament, the days of our Savior, they wanted Israel for a specific purpose, taxes. You see, they conquered the northern regions up where, up where there's uh, Germany and France today. They wanted those for the fertile lands, and they planted vineyards and all kinds of things up there because they wanted to farm those lands and bring that, that, that commerce back home. They conquered different regions for all kinds of purposes, but Israel was wanted for something specific. They didn't want to plant there. They didn't want to reap there. That was not their interest. They wanted the taxation from there. Israel was the land crossroads between Northern Africa, Arabia, Asia, and Europe. Now, bear in mind, Rome built a lot of roads. They did not build those to be nice guys. They put a lot of work into them, too. Have you ever looked at a cross-section of a Roman road? They're deeper than they are wide. It would be like building the Great Wall of China at ground level. People still drive on those roads today, which is remarkable because ODOT can't make a road last longer than five years. They didn't build these to be nice guys. They built them for taxes. You see, they wanted to tax all commerce throughout the empire that to use their roads that weren't just roads, they were secure, they were safe. They used to get jumped by robbers in just a few miles of a jump. It was incredibly treacherous. You had to hire guards to go with you everywhere they went. The Romans put uh, centurions on the road. They, they, they kept the road safe. If there was bandits, look out, here comes Rome. They kept it safe so they could tax everybody. And Israel was not a crossroads to to land travel. It was the crossroads to land travel. It was lucrative. And taxes were the name of the game. Something about occupation of an enemy force is that there's always the corroborator. Corroborators are not very popular. And one of the things that uh, I've, I've been able to see a lot more since getting married is chick flicks. And if you've seen... The Guernsey Potato Peel and Literary Potato Peel Pie and Literary Society. I think that's the name of the title on Netflix. One of the subplots follows a corroborator on Guernsey who sided with the Germans and informed about who was going where. And they chose him because he knew the people, he knew the commerce, he knew the local culture. So, whenever an empire takes over somewhere, they choose corroborators. They know the the, the economy. They know everything. They are kinsmen to everybody. And they're seen as traitors. The traitors in Israel, the corroborators, were those that helped bring the the bounty of the land back. And the bounty of the land was taxes. The corroborators were tax collectors. This is why when you hear tax collectors referenced in Scripture, it's always put together sinners and tax collectors. They hated these people. They were chosen because they knew the families. They knew who was there. They were seen as corroborators, and so they were uh, cut off from the people, cast out of the synagogues. Their families disowned them. They were subject to political killings. There's a movement called the Zealots, who are known for carrying daggers in their cloaks, and they'd go up to publicans, usually tax collectors in a crowded area, stab them in the kidneys, and then run away. Surprisingly enough, Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector are both disciples. I wonder how long Matthew slept with one eye open. (laughs) Is it really okay now? I don't know. They were famously corrupt. Famously corrupt. 
Josephus writes about this. Other people would write about it because Rome didn't really care how just they were. They just wanted the taxes to come back because their overlords would say, are the taxes coming in? Their overlords said the taxes coming in till it goes all the way to Caesar Augustus who's saying, are the taxes coming in? So all that mattered is the money went up. They didn't care what happened down below. And so it looked like this. You would come into a town the tax collector would come to you and he'd see you're bringing in four dozen eggs, two bushels of wheat. He knows the price of bushels of wheat and eggs in Jerusalem. He knows what they're trading for. He charges you 10%. He says, that's going to be five denarii. You hand them to him. He goes, great, that'll be five denarii. And you'd say, I just paid you. And he goes, no, you didn't. Guards! And then you would quick file out the other five and get on your way. And you would leave just furious. And this is the way they did things because why not? They were cut off from the people. They had no a relation to anyone except for the Romans that kept them safe and the other tax collectors they could spend time with. And that's why it's so controversial that Jesus would ever eat with one. And here's the thing. They weren't targeting the wealthy people that could make trouble for them. They weren't going after the gentry families. They weren't going after Pharisees. The poor are the easiest to go after because no one advocates for them extort them at the tax change, make them leave, and you'll be fine. Don't go any higher. Now, I got, I'm so glad the projector's working because I have a slide for us today. Go to that map. The story today is going to take place in Jericho. Now, I know that that text is completely unreadable, but you see the red square? That's Jericho. Green one's Jerusalem. Jericho is a prime tax location. It was along a major crossroads. It was people coming to Jerusalem to do trade, to make sacrifices. It was a great place to bring taxes, so there was a heavy presence there. Now, tax collectors worked under an administrator called the chief tax collector. And what's interesting is they're hardly in the Bible except for one. Chief tax collectors were in charge of everybody. They would have set the culture They would have been the ones that really directed if things are going to be done fairly or unfairly. It wasn't Rome that cared. It would have to come from a chief tax collector. So a good one meant justice and a bad one meant injustice. So in our story, Jesus is going to enter Jericho. And there is a great social injustice that takes place in the city every day. People are being extorted. There is a system that isn't working. How is he going to confront it? So we're going to read this story today. Jesus entered, now guess Jericho from the Old Testament, the one with the walls that came down, if you're wondering. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus, and he was a chief tax collector and was wealthy, which is a bit of a bad sign. He wanted to see uh, who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. Then Jesus reached the spot, and he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he is gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the, uh, and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Now it's important to understand that when Luke's recording the story, he has a very 
clear thing he's wanting to portray and teach people through the story. It is a picture of generic salvation. He wants to paint a salvation picture of what it is, what it means like at a theological level of coming to Jesus, answering the call on the day that you're called, and Jesus comes and dwells with you, and your heart is changed. One of the ways this is driven is the phrasing, I must stay with you today. Today is a strong theme in Luke, and the whole New Testament for being the day of salvation, the day of salvation for the individual. There is the day of the Lord, but today, as in today, if you hear his, the voice of the Lord, do not harden your hearts. It was a calling that one must respond to. There was a today for you, probably, unless today is your day. <laughs> uh, but there was a day that, that the Lord called you, and that was your day to say yes, to say, come and live with me, come and dwell with me. And the statement, I must stay, the emphatic nature of it, the way that it's worded as if I have a commandment, I came here, further drives this beautiful picture of divine selection of him. I was sent by my father to be with you, and this is the day of your destiny. And in this beautiful story, Zacchaeus welcomes him gladly and he receives the salvation. The pledge is interesting because it shows that Zacchaeus knows the law to some level because the greatest level of payback for, for stealing that one could possibly give uh, would be four times the amount. It comes from the book of Deuteronomy. And so as he wants to have this obedience, he wants to come into this light and his heart changes. We miss something that everybody else would have gotten when they read this. We don't live in this area. We don't know how a chief tax collector would affect a city. We don't know the importance that they would have had over a major trade route. But by the change in that one man's heart is going to liberate that city from an incredible social injustice. Because not only is he going to pay it back, but he is in charge of every other tax collector. There was a major change that takes place in that city. Because Christ saves, but he also saves people from a broken system. Both happen in his gospel. We've got the four squares of the gospel. Yes, coming king, baptizer, healer, savior. Four things that are part of what we teach. But there's also what's called the identity keystones. Four things that make Foursquare the unique identity that we are. And number one is called the integrated mission. Uh, the rest of them are women in ministry, uh, Pentecostal ethos, and indigenous empowerment, if you're curious. But number one is integrated mission. And this is this, this belief and this desire that we have as, as a denomination, we as a church have to, to strike this understanding that Christ's mission to this world is integrated that he saves the individual, but also wherever his feet hit, there should be justice that comes with it, that his people should take up his cause, that if God would take up the cause of the poor in court, as it says in Proverbs, that his church would do the same. Isaiah says that when the Messiah comes, it'll be like mountains being cut off and valleys being brought up and the whole world reformatted as he comes along, taking down what's high and bringing up what's low making things right. That with his movement would come an advocacy for people who cannot advocate for themselves. Another way we're like the Lord. 
And I think what's very critical is verse 9 and 10, it, it, Jesus expresses his mercy. Today, salvation has come to this house because of this man too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man has come to seek and save the lost. Zacchaeus is not an enemy. Even though he sat at the top of this echelon of oppression, he is not named an enemy. He's named as someone who's lost. Lost like the people that he also takes advantage of. He's rich in wealth, but he's very poor in spirit. Christ said elsewhere, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And this story tells this beautiful picture. Blessed is Zacchaeus who is poor in spirit because the gospel of Christ has saved him into the kingdom of God. I think one of the failings that many people have that advocate against injustice is the sheer unchrist-like hatred they feel towards the people that do the things they don't like. The violent hatred to hate the leader, to hate the, the people, the system, to not have mercy on it too. We're not to hate the leader, the rich man, the politician that brings oppression. Christ commanded you to pray and to love your enemies. It's a dramatically different approach. Paul teaches in Ephesians that we don't war against flesh and blood, but dark spiritual authorities in this world. And there is a greater darkness in this world is the point, much greater than the people that we feel like are at the top, much greater than the Zacchaeuses or the people that have made trouble. And the oppressors are eaten by this darkness as well. Any true Christian advocacy for justice is going to look like uncommon grace and kindness, as well as courage and conviction. It's portrayed as a wise thing. If God is going to come, remember, everything is about what should one do. If God is going to come to the defense of the poor, we should probably be standing on the same side. If he's the defendant, we should be the paralegals with the defendant. We should be serving these matters and with him. It is an action of the wise to defend the poor. It is not foolish. It is not emotional. And it is no abdication to preach the gospel. Guys, we're four square, we're evangelical. We will never stop preaching the gospel. That is at the core of who we are. It is the thing that matters the most. But can we have a fuller picture of the way the gospel would serve this world? I think there's two things that we see in this. One is that it's, it's a call for us to not personally take advantage of the poor. That, that, that's probably more personal than I, and. I had a hard time even thinking of ways that I could illustrate that to you. You're going to have to ask the Holy Spirit to ask you about that. The ways that, that it, it, do you ever find it easier to push back on someone that doesn't have the power to push back against you? Do you find yourself more merciful on someone that can make trouble for you? And to let our own hearts grow in the way that we treat the powerless. And that we would join our Father join our Jesus and bring justice to places in this world. There's a lot of things of injustice. There's uh, things that happen even today. Uh, there's, there's redlining. 
where they'll take uh, zip codes that belong to primarily black people. And they, the banks will say, this is an area that's dangerous to lend to, and they won't. You know, Oregon is full of stories of people that say, back in the 80s, I bought this property for 50000 and now it's worth three quarters of a million. But what if you couldn't get a loan in the 80s, and so you never had that enormous buildup of, of salary and wealth and money? These things still take place. There's all kinds of things we have for people in poverty, like food stamps and Section 9 housing, but there aren't a lot of clear ways to help people find their next steps to move up and to get out of these things. It's hard to find the connections. It's hard to know where the scholarships are. It's hard to know what's available, or even if they do exist in the first place. And we have a system where young kids who have no wisdom or experience know what they're gonna do with their life. We put a pressure on them to borrow an enormous amount of money that has left the generation strapped with crippling student debt. There are still broken systems. What can be done for those who lack this power to defend themselves? We can't ignore voices and not be involved. There are ways that we can get involved. Now, obviously, I know the things I just said are big issues. They're a lot bigger than living way could tackle on its own or that you could tackle on your own. They're things to be aware of, to be aware of injustice and to do our best to try to be like Christ, preaching the gospel and bringing the liberation as well. But for kindness for you all, I have a few easy ways to get involved with things if you feel convicted to get more involved. There's all kinds of ways to volunteer and donate. One is a Compassion First. That's one of the ones that we uh, get involved with every Christmas, and a lot of you give regularly to Compassion First. They're a ministry in Indonesia. They, they help save women and girls from uh, human sex trafficking. They teach them jobs. And so one of the worst things you can save someone, but then they keep going back to it because they don't know anything else. I love the multi-step approach of, of Compassion First, that it is job training and it's saving at the same time, and it's been incredibly effective. Another one I really like is Charity Water. Um, charity Water is, I, I think there's a lot of ministries and nonprofits that work to bring pure water. Charity Water is the biggest and most successful. They're fantastic. Their mission, get this, is to eliminate malaria from the face of the planet. You got to get behind a vision like that. So they're pretty great. Uh, the, they're not necessarily a Christian organization, but the founder was, uh, he used to promote nightclubs. He had this huge turnaround, went on a Christian's missions trip. He himself is a born-again believer, but he's kept it kind of open so everyone can donate. Uh, they have supplied water to 15,503,622 people as of this morning. Uh, another, if, if, you're, if you feel convicted to get involved in local levels, there are many ways to get involved. Sandy Action Center right here in town. They provide food uh, to relieve uh, hunger and poverty in our city. Uh, we even have our own. You can volunteer or donate to, to, to Laundry Love. I did put the wrong date up there, and thank you for highlighting that, Donette. Uh, it is the second Tuesday of every month. You can forget about that, but we take over Cedar's Laundromat, and we do laundry for people here in town because there is a certain... Uh, I don't know, there's, there's a barrier, a social distancing that happens where people can't feel comfortable in a place they're at when they don't, they don't smell the way they would want or they're not as clean as they'd want. So this is really inspired by extending dignity to people in a very practical way. At a rhythm, once a month they can come and their laundry's done for them for free. So there's a lot of things that we can do to get involved in this, in God's work to not just restore the individual, but to also bring hope to the world around us. And you can see how the two come together. In the story, I mean, you see Zacchaeus has a heart change that brings about justice after his personal salvation. 
Oftentimes, it can work in all kinds of order where a person comes in for a food box, feels the love, gets more involved with something, and suddenly finds that there is something a lot more feeding than a food box. And they have an experience like the woman at the well who came for water in a physical sense and was given water in an eternal sense. The two work together and thus the integrated mission. It's how this gets spread. It's how we do. And I think it would be, uh, it would behoove us being in the area that we're in. Maybe there's other denominations that need a sermon in a different direction. But for us to bring the balance of wherever I go, goes the advocacy for, for the poor and the oppressed where I go, I go in the name of one who guards them, who protects them. He will take up their cause, so I might as well get involved. And to be one with him in that mission, in an integrated mission, to restore the world and to bring it to the gospel. That we wouldn't shrink back from preaching the gospel where it's not going to happen, so let's balance with an integrated mission. Dreaming of ways that the churches in this city and around the area could work to fix problems in our city and in our state and in our world and join our Father as he advocates for the poor and the downtrodden. I'm gonna pray for us. There's some Sundays that it's about, what do we do? Next few Sundays are probably gonna feel that way because it's Proverbs. How should we do? How do we respond? How do we react? Let us respond well to a meeting world around us. Make it a marathon, not a sprint, as we've developed this deep and integrated mission. Lord, this morning I ask that you would... um, that you would inspire us. God, I pray that even as we, as we open up new dimensions of our own discipleship to you, as we give in all kinds of ways, God, I pray that you would make the spirit come more alive. Lord, that as we, as we open up and, and turn on systems that we hadn't in our faith of caring for people at a deeper level, that we would feel that, that fellowship with you. That if you're sitting uh, in the lawyers, at the lawyer's table, God, that we would be your paralegal sitting next to you. We'd feel that close relationship. God, inspire us as ways that we can, uh, we can lift the chins of the downtrodden, that we could give hope, God. Help us find those practical things. Lord, give us courage that if you're asking us to, to donate time, that you'll help us find the time to do so, no matter how overwhelmed. If you're asking us to give money right now in this time, as hard as it is on all of us with the inflation and things that are going on, God, give us the faith that if we give in your name for your cause, it never returns void. Lord, I pray for a great movement of obedience to be on us on all parts, giving us boldness to preach the gospel and to extend the healing hand of Christ. Be with us today and guide us as we are your people and your image. In your name we pray, amen.